So here we are in Galatians 3 once again. The verses that we just read together this morning are the verses that we'll be covering today. And, and today what I want to do is just sort of take, um, take these, these verses from 15 to 29 and just do more or less an exposition of them. And then there's uh, a couple of statements here that will probably come back around. Before we finish chapter three, we'll probably come back around and look at a couple of things in more detail. But today we want to uh, continue to follow uh, Paul's argument here. So once again, just real quickly to set the stage, remember Paul goes to Galatia. The Galatians are, the Galatians are um, they're, they're pagans, they're idol worshipers, they're um, lost in, in all of that sin and so forth. And Paul comes with the gospel and they receive Christ as the savior and they're born of the spirit and they're filled with the spirit and they're living in the joy of the Lord and the blessing of God. And it's just a, a beautiful um, experience for everybody until these certain false teachers come and they bring in the idea that the Galatians need to add the Mosaic law to their faith in Christ in order to really be perfected. And unfortunately, the Galatians, uh, they just lay hold of this, they embrace it, they turn against Paul, and they start thinking that now they're um, extraordinarily righteous because now they've uh, adopted the law as well as uh, their, their faith in Christ. So, so Paul is on a mission to turn them back to the true, simple faith in Christ to show them the fallacy of their position, to show them that by embracing the law, far from bringing themselves into a, a deeper, closer relationship with God, they've actually put themselves under a curse because uh, it is written in the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things that are written in the law to do them. And so he's showing them the fallacy of this and he continues to do that right on through the remainder of the chapter. And so in verse 15, he says, brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So something that they would all understand. He says, I'm, I'm just speaking in a common way here in the manner of men. If it's only a man's covenant, if so, if two people enter into a contract, that's the picture that he's painting. If two people enter into a contract and sign the contract, the contract is binding. It, it can't be altered. And he's using that to illustrate his point that Abraham uh, received a covenant from God. And just like a human contract can't be altered, neither can the covenant that God made with Abraham. So <coughs> for, them, for them to think that, that uh, 430 years later, 
after the covenant had already been established for all of these, uh, you know, four and a half centuries almost, that God's going to somehow come along and throw in this additional thing, Paul is really trying to show them the absurdity of that thought, that, that God would make all these promises to Abraham and then at a later point say, well, you know, I've been rethinking it and listen, we're not going to do it that way anymore. We're going we're to bring in this addition of the law and the promises are only going to be fulfilled if you keep this. Paul's, Paul's just really showing them how uh, absurd such thinking is. Now, the covenant that God made with Abraham was an unconditional covenant and it was an irreversible covenant. So it was unconditional. God came to Abraham and he just simply said this, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. Uh, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Your, your descendants are going to be uh, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give it to your descendants. And he just went on with this list of things. And that was it. He didn't say, I'm going to do all of this if you do this, that, or the other thing. God just declares, this is what I'm going to do. It's unconditional. Abraham says, great, I believe that. God says, okay, you're righteous. So Paul is saying that that's the way the covenant is. It's an unconditional, irreversible covenant. So the idea that somehow the law, which came 430 years later, I mean, think about how long 430 years is. It is a long time, right? Our nation's not 430 years old, is it? Just a little more than half of that. We're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, 1517. And that was a long time ago. And so it's the same sort of a thing for them to think that after all of this time, God suddenly changes the rules, so to speak, and says, oh, no, we're not going to do it that way anymore. Paul says, no, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. So the question is, what, what is the purpose of the law? And they've been misled by the false teachers to think the purpose of the law is justification, that it's through the keeping of the law that you obtain favor with God. Paul shows them here that that was never God's intended purpose for the law. Now, you can find similar argumentation in Paul's letter to the Romans. And in, in Romans 1 through 7, and uh, these chapters here in Gal uh, Galatians 3 and 4, you find very similar kinds of arguments because Paul's dealing with the same types of issues. And, and there in the, um, the letter to the Romans, he goes to great lengths to point out that this idea that somehow the law saves you, Paul just says, no, the law, that's, that's not the purpose of the law. So these, the Jews, of course, had... Uh, a horrible time in trying to uh, separate the law from the gospel. Uh, but now these Galatians have just bought into the same thing. So Paul is going to uh, explain to them the true purpose of the law. So he says in verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? Okay, if the law doesn't save us, if this isn't the way that we're made right with God, what, what is the point of the law? What does it do? So he says, he says, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise 
was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. So purpose number one, why, why the law? Number one, it was added because of transgression. So the law was added to show what sin is. As Paul says in writing to the Romans, he says, he says um, that death reigned from Adam to Moses, but where there is no commandment, there, were, there was no real understanding of sin. Sin was in the world and it was proved by the fact that death reigned. But where there's no commandment as to what is right and what is wrong, there, there was no clarification. So the law comes along and it's added because of transgression, it's added to show what sin really is. And it's also in that, uh, that it's added because of transgression, it's added to, uh, to keep the people from transgressing because their transgression would lead to their destruction, which then would potentially interfere with the fulfillment of God's promise. If there's no nation left to fulfill the promises to, that creates a problem. So the law was added because of transgression. Now, verse, the end of verse 19 and verse 20, I, I wanna just comment on this really briefly because this passage, and maybe you're one of those people who you're, you're reading your Bible consistently, you've come across this passage and you've wondered, what in the world does this mean? And, you know, I've had many experiences in my life as uh, a student of the Bible, a teacher of the Bible, of coming across like a, you know, kind of a difficult passage to understand. And then I go to like a commentary to see, well, what do they say about it? And, you know, so often they don't say anything about it. And you're like, wait, I, I want to know what this is. And, you know, sometimes that could even happen at church where there's that one passage, you're, you're, you know that you're going to get there. And you're like, oh man, I can't wait till we get there because I really want to know what that means. And then you get there and the pastor just skips right over it. So I'm tempted to do that, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> because it is, it is a little bit of a perplexing um, couple of verses here. But so what is Paul talking about here? He says, um, he says it was appointed, uh, the law was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. So what he's talking about here, even though it's a, it's a bit difficult to grasp it, what he's talking about here, again, is the difference between the two covenants. You see, the, the, the covenant between God and Abraham was, was just between them. There was no mediator. God speaking directly to Abraham, telling him, this is what I'm going to do. When you come to the Mosaic covenant, it's a different story. You've got God, you've got the people of Israel, but you've got a mediator in between. And the, the point is this, that the Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional covenant. The Mosaic covenant was not. You see, the Mosaic covenant could only bless if the people were obedient to it. So it was conditional. God says, I'm gonna do this, 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 and that, and you must do this, 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 and that. But that's not the covenant with Abraham. God just says, I'm gonna do this for you. And so that's what he's, I think, alluding to here when he talks about this whole thing of uh, having the mediator. Um, 
I, explain, I, I explained this last service and some guy came up afterwards and goes, you know, I still don't get what you were talking about with the mediator thing. So if that's you, then talk to me later and we'll have some coffee and try to figure it out. But uh, so he goes on though. And notice what he says. He says, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. You see, what, what happened is when Paul made these statements, rather than really listening to what Paul was saying and understanding it, they just took it and ran with it and they would inevitably accuse Paul of saying things that he didn't say. So Paul's not faulting the law. And of course, in the mind of the, of the Jew, and now these people that are influenced by the Jews, they'd be thinking, oh man, I can't believe that Paul's so disrespectful to the law. How dare he say that? How could he say something like that about the law? But that's not what Paul was doing. Is he saying that the law is against the promises of God? Certainly not. And again, in covering similar ground in Romans, he says to them, listen, the law is holy, it's just and good. There's nothing the matter with the law. Don't misunderstand me. The law is fine. It's holy, just, and good. The problem is not the law. The problem is us. We're sinners. And the law demands perfect obedience if it's going to bless, and we can't bless it. So that, in that sense, the law uh, is a problem. It's a problem for us because we can't keep it. So is the law against the promises of God? No. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So notice the scripture has confined all under sin. This is the problem. The law can't save us because we're all sinners. And once you're a sinner, then that means the law is no help to you whatsoever. All the law is doing is affirming, yes, you're a sinner. That's all it's doing. It can't bring you above that. If there had been a law that could have been kept for justification, that's the way God would have done it. But because we're all sinners, it's impossible. So he says then, uh, the scripture is confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. So the second thing we're told is that the law, the purpose of the law, it kept us under guard. The law was God's way of protecting the people from the destruction of sin. So it was like they were in protective custody under the law. So remember, Israel's surrounded by all of these nations that have engaged in idolatry and all kinds of sin and perversity and all of that sort of thing, which would ultimately lead to their demise, would lead to their destruction, their annihilation. They would self-destruct because of this. Now, Israel is surrounded by this, and so that same possibility is there for them but God's going to put them in protective custody, so to speak, by giving them the law. That's going to protect them from the, the destructive nature of sin that could potentially come in and wipe them out. And like I said, if it wipes them out, then there's no nation to bless. So the law is given as a protective measure to keep them from self-destruction. But then... He says, finally here, in regard to the purpose of the law, therefore the law was our tutor to
to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the law was added because of transgression. The law was uh, there to keep us in protective custody. Now the law is our tutor or schoolmaster. The Greek word um, is the word we get the word pedagogue from. It means uh, an instructor or a teacher, and it was referring to, in the culture of the day, it was referring to uh, something that was common in the Greek and Roman homes where you would have an instructor over the children, and particularly over the boys. And that person was to prepare them for manhood. That was their job. And so they would teach them everything they needed to know to become men. And they would not only educate them, but they would also uh, discipline them very strictly. And they would make sure that they were, they were disciplined and principled young men so that when they came to the age of inheriting, uh, they, they would enter into their adulthood fully prepared. So that, that's the picture that Paul uh, illustrates the point with. The law was our tutor. It was our schoolmaster to bring us to the place where we could enter into the full inheritance. That would be the place of Christ. So the law is the thing that was ultimately pointing people to Jesus. You see, here's God's intention for um, man's response to the law. When, when I see the law, and we'll, we'll just summarize the law in the Ten Commandments, all right? The law was, was broader than the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments was, was more or less the summary of the law, the moral aspect of the law. And so here's the way God intended for it to work, that a person would see the law, and in seeing the law, would understand that they failed to keep the law. So in going through the commandments, you shall, uh, I'm, I'm the Lord, your, your God, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make an image, you shall not bow down to or worship, uh, you, you should um, you know, not take the name of the Lord in vain and you keep the, the Sabbath and uh, honor your father and your mother and you shall not commit adultery and murder and theft and covetousness and all these things. So God says, okay, he puts this out and what he expects is that we would look at that and say, oh no, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I haven't done this. Oh God, have mercy on me. Oh God, is there another way that I could be saved? See, that's, that's the intention with the law. But what has man done with the law? Well, we've looked at the law and said, yeah, sure, I can do that. That's not a problem. Got any more? You know, 10, 10, you know, maybe, how about 15? You know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. That's the way people tend to look at the law. But that's not the purpose of it. And listen, this isn't a problem that was uh, only a problem 2,000 years ago with the Galatians. This is a problem today. This is the same thing today. This is the way people think. Now, if they're religious, if they're Jewish, or if they're even um, belonged in the larger 
you know, Christian denominations or whatever, uh, or, or Muslim or whatever the case, people think like this. They think, well, you know, I keep these laws, I, or at least I do my best to do that, and that's sufficient. That's my uh, ticket to heaven or wherever you end up in the end. People still think that today. It's, it's a very common uh, thought. And even, ironically, even for people who don't believe in God, even for atheists, atheists still have a sense that they're working for something. You know, they're doing good things. And that's somehow going to ultimately benefit them. So the problem still remains with us. But the law is not a solution to our problem. The law is only pointing out that we do have the problem. So the way we are to react to the law is to let it do what it was intended to do, to lead us to Christ. And listen, when people do come to understand that these laws are fixed, and you know, this is something that the modern mind needs to really lay hold of. These laws are fixed. There's, it doesn't matter what people say about them, whether they like them or dislike them or approve or disapprove, or they can uh, get them overruled in a court of law or get them, you know, uh, in, a, in a constitution, get around uh, obeying them. None of that matters. These laws are fixed forever. They can't be altered. And every transgression of these laws requires punishment. And so the truth of the matter is, as we look at the law and as we take it to heart, it's to bring us to the place of recognizing I am in trouble before God. Oh God, I need a savior. And of course, God has provided a savior. That's what Jesus is. He saves us from the penalty of our sins, which are violations of God's law. So that's the, the work of the law. That's the, the job of the law. Now, let me, let me just say this too, that any person who somehow thinks that they are a Christian, but yet at the same time doesn't recognize their need for forgiveness is not a Christian. You see, you can't be a Christian and say something like, well, you know, I'm a Christian, but I've just never felt the need to be forgiven. If you've never felt the need to be forgiven, then you're not forgiven. But you do need to be forgiven. You just haven't felt the need. You haven't, the, the reality of what the law is hasn't, hasn't hit home with you. You haven't allowed the, that conviction of the Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, is sent into the world to convict the world of sin. So if I'm saying I'm a Christian, but I've never been uh, convicted of sin, then my Christianity is not a biblical Christianity. You see, biblical Christianity is a person has recognized, I am a sinner. I am undone. I am hopeless. Apart from intervention on the part of God, I am damned. I am doomed. That's the biblical picture. It's only those who recognize they need a savior that are saved. Because listen, Jesus is first and foremost before anything else in relation to man, he is a savior. And make no mistake about that because 
today, and it's not the only time it's ever been like this, but today people think, well, you know, Jesus is a good example. Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus was a martyr for a noble cause. Jesus is a savior, and he saves people from sin. And we are sinners. We have broken God's law. And the very uh, purpose of the law is to show us that and to lead us to Christ. And so that's what he says. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Listen, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now think about the context here. The Galatians, they'd come to faith. They were already there. But now, under this deception, they're thinking, we gotta go back under the tutor. Paul says, no, the, the, the purpose of the law was to lead you to where you are. And once you get there, the, the law is done. That it, its task has been accomplished. Again, in addressing similar things with the, the Roman church, the Jewish believers there, he, Paul said, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So when you come to Christ, the law has done its job and the law is now left behind. It's discarded at this point because it's done what it was intended to do. And that's what Paul says here. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For you are all sons of God. Now, verse 26, where it says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Just note this. Sometimes... When you find this phrase, sons of God, um, like in the, in the King James Version, you'll find sons of God almost always, all the way through, very consistently. But in newer translations, it'll read children of God. And in some cases, that's the way it should read, children of God. Because, of course, it's referring to all of God's children, not just sons, but daughters as well. But there are times when the term is, is intentionally sons of God. And here's the reason why. Because, again, in that culture, the son was the one who would enter into all the fullness of the inheritance that the father had for him. So when Paul uses sons of God in this sense, he's wanting us to understand not that there's not a male-female component to this, because he's talking about this position. So we have all become sons of God through faith in Christ. In other words, we have all entered into the fullness of the blessing of the inheritance that God has for us in Christ. So that's what he's trying to get the Galatians to understand. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Think about this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Why does he say this? Because these Greeks or these Gentiles were thinking they had to become Jews. That's what they were thinking. Oh, we're Gentiles. We're not really acceptable to God. 
believing in Jesus was just step one. Now we've got to become Jews to really be acceptable. Paul said, no, in Christ, there, this distinction is gone. There is no Jew or Gentile, Jew or Greek. So get rid of that. But then also in the culture, you would have had these kinds of divisions where even transferring over into the spiritual realm, the free man would consider himself more acceptable to God than would the slave. And of course, the free man would think the slave was less acceptable to God. And because of the, um, the, the perspective on women, there would have been that same thought. So Paul just obliterates all of that within the culture. He says, in regard to the gospel, all of this is wiped out. We're all one now in Christ. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So Paul is just saying to them, he's saying, listen, you've, you, from day one, you've already had everything that you could ever want. And this little diversion that you've gone off on regarding the law, Paul is, you know, in a sense, he's just pleading with them, set this aside. This is, you know, you don't understand the law. Here, let me explain it to you. This is why the law existed, but it never was intended to enhance your relationship with God. That relationship that you obtained through faith is you can't improve on it. It's the, the greatest it could possibly be. Now, here's how I want us to understand this for ourselves today. It is so important that you know this, that I know this. It is important to know that in salvation, there are two positions or there's two ways of looking at our salvation. There's, we, look, we can look at it from God's point of view and we look at it from the human point of view. Now, here's what we need to understand. This is really important that we grasp this. From God's point of view, the very moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are perfected from God's point of view, and that can never be improved on. How can that be? Well, because you have been given the righteousness of Christ, and you can't improve on the righteousness of Christ. Jesus' righteousness is perfect. So positionally, it doesn't get any better than it is from the very start. It's as good as it will ever be. It's as good as it has to be. It can't be improved upon. From, the, uh, from our position, we are in a perfect, permanent bond of love with our Heavenly Father. But then there is salvation from the experiential side. And this is where it relates to us here on the earth. So in heaven, Paul says in writing to the Ephesians, he says, we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. We're already there. As far as God's concerned, we're already there. 
sitting in heaven with Christ. But from our point of view, we're still here, right? So it's the position, and then there's the experience. So I, I have to lay hold of the truth of my position. And when I understand my position, then when it comes to my experience, my experience is, is the right experience because it's not an experience of trying to work my way into f- uh, God's favor positionally. I already know that I'm there. No, my experience then becomes just going deeper in my relationship with the Lord here. And listen, this is, this is something that it's hard sometimes And for some people, it's really hard to get this truth into our minds because, you know, maybe we grew up with uh, just a heavy works mentality. Maybe it was religiously imposed on us. Maybe it was just we, we grew up in an environment. Maybe it wasn't religious at all, but there was a heavy works mentality that was forced upon us. So we project that onto our relationship with God and we're somehow always thinking that I'm working my way into God's favor or I'm failing to obtain God's favor because I'm not doing that well. I had an 80-year-old woman say to me after the last service, thank you so much because this message really set me free because this is what I struggle with. And she's been in this church for 30 years. So that's how tenacious this thing can be in, in holding on to us and you know, causing us to live with a, with a constant sense of suspense about our ultimate salvation and, and a sense of failure and oftentimes a sense of guilt. So we've got to get hold of this. Positionally, I'm already there. But then what about my, my life here on earth? Well, what am I doing? I'm not trying to earn my way into favor with God, I already have that. What I'm doing here on earth now is I am cultivating the, the relationship that I have with God so I can here and now experience more the blessing of salvation or the way Paul puts it here, the, the blessing of Abraham. See, God says to Abraham, he says, I'm gonna bless you. Now, blessing means that God's gonna bestow his favor on you. So God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to, you know, all of these things. And he just, and then he says, and I'm going to make you a blessing to others. I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. And you know what? When we experience the blessing of God, you know what we automatically become? We become a blessing to others. And when you're living in God's blessing, the joy of the Lord, the peace of God, the love of Christ, a spirit of generosity and and all those kinds of things, you just automatically become a blessing to others. So what we're doing now as believers, we are cultivating our relationship with the Lord, our fellowship with him, so that we can enter more fully into the blessing and thereby be a blessing to others. Now, I like this word cultivate. Maybe you've noticed that because I use it a lot. But think about it. 
Think about what it is to cultivate something. Think about a uh, you know plant or something. When, when you're cultivating, you're what are you doing? You're 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 tending to it. You're you know you're you're making sure that it's um, fed and watered and trimmed, and you're making sure it's getting enough light. And you're you know you're you're, you're pulling out the little weeds and things like that because you're you're wanting to do all you can to allow it to become all that it potentially can be. And so with our relationship with the Lord, this is what we're doing. We're, we're cultivating it. We're, we're, we're just investing in spiritual things. And it's like pulling out the weeds and fertilizing and, and uh, trimming it back and putting it in the, in the sun at the right time and in the shade at the other times. That This is all what's happening. And it's causing our lives to grow into that mature, fruitful life that God intends for us. And then we become a blessing. Now, Paul, think about Paul. Paul, of course, knew God. He knew God. But do you know what he said after decades of knowing God and serving God and walking with God? Do you know what he said? His great ambition was that I might know him. How is that? Paul, you already know him. Yes, I do, but I want to know him in ever greater ways. That would be the way he would respond. Paul said, this is my great ambition, that I would know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection out from among the dead. Now, some people think that Paul, some people actually think Paul was really confused about salvation. Sometimes he thought it was free by grace. Sometimes he thought you had to work for it. And that's one of the places where people say, see, Paul says he's trying to attain to the resurrection. So he's working hard to, to hopefully make the resurrection on the last day. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about on the resurrection on the last day. What he's talking about when he says that I might attain to the resurrection, literally it should read out from among the dead. What Paul is saying is, I want to know Christ in an ever deeper way so that I might live a life that is distinguished from the dead that I live among. I want to live a life that is reflective of God's life. And how am I doing that? I'm doing that by growing in my relationship with him. So that's what we're doing. We, uh, we are not working hard to secure a position in heaven. That is secure. What we're doing is we're giving ourselves so that we can experience in ever greater ways the depth of the riches of the knowledge of God whose ways are unsearchable, whose paths are beyond finding out. Listen, I, I'm as guilty as anybody on this, but listen, how is it that we have a relationship with the everlasting God and we settle for so much less most of the time? How is it that we do that? How is it that we're content to just have a very surface experience with him when there, there are, are depths and there are riches? Uh, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. 
And there's this un- unfathomable thing. You know, if we took a billion years, if you had a billion years to seek out God, you know what? By the end of a billion years, you still would not have sought him out thoroughly. It's impossible. If you couldn't find out the depths of God in a billion years, are you worried that you're gonna exhaust it in 50 years? Of course you're not. It's never gonna happen. So my point is this. We can go deeper and deeper. We can really go as deep as we wanna go. Or we can remain as shallow as we want to be. You know, some people are content to just be ankle deep. Some get brave and say, well, you know, I'll get out to my knees, but that's as far as I'm going. There's a, there's a beautiful picture in uh, Ezekiel in the 40, 40th chapter there through the ch- 40s, the end, of the, the end of the book, where it talks about this river and the prophet describes walking out into the river, ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep, chest deep, and then I was swimming in the river. And the river is a picture. It's, it's, it's a picture of the spirit of God. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about going from just putting our feet in to going deeper and deeper with the Lord. That's the beautiful thing that we have. You know, yesterday I was, um, I was in Las Vegas and I flew from, I flew from Germany to, uh, through London to Las Vegas and um, I spoke at a conference yesterday in Las, Las Vegas. And one of the speakers was a, a woman named Kay Arthur. Some of you ladies will be familiar with Kay. Kay is uh, an amazing woman. She's written approximately 100 books. Uh, she's ministered in 150 nations. Her books are translated in all different kinds of languages. I mean, she's absolutely uh, just a wonderful, wonderful gal. She's 83 years old. This woman had more energy than I think I've ever had, and she's 83. And, and, I'm, and I'm watching her as she's sharing God's word at this conference yesterday, and, and I am just so impressed with her, her knowledge of God's word. I mean, she's just like a walking Bible. She just you know, opens her mouth and just, it's just the Bible coming out of her. She's kind of like an older version of my wife. And uh, I was actually looking at her going, okay, this is, this is what Cheryl's going to look like in 30 years. She's going to be just like this. But, you know, as I sat there and as I listened to her and then as I engaged in conversation with her, I just thought, wow, this lady, and she, she told her story. She told her testimony. She didn't come to Christ till she was like about 30. She came out of all kinds of trouble and everything. But, you know, she met the Lord, and it's like she just hit the ground running, and she never stopped. And as I was listening to her tell her story, and as I was listening to her share the word, and I was listening to the the richness and the depth in her life, man, I was just so blessed, and I was so impressed. I think, Lord, that is is wonderful. That's what I want to be doing when I'm 83. That, that's, I, I, I want to go deeper. Her husband passed away two weeks ago, January 9th, 51 years of marriage. You would have never known it by her, by her uh, presence yesterday. But you know, I was speaking to her and she said, you know, I am intentionally rejoicing in my husband's entrance into glory. 
I'm not sitting around and grieving as, as a broken-hearted widow because my husband entered into the very thing that we were created for. He transitioned into the presence of God. And she said, and I'm going to do that pretty soon too. And I'm excited about it. And I want to show people that this is something to be excited about. It's not something to be dreading. This is the thing that we were created for, to know God and to be with him ultimately, personally, in his presence eternally. And you know, as she was saying those things, I was just, again, I was so uh, impressed with her deep connection with the Lord. But at the same time, she was just a very real, fun joyful person. She was wonderful. And this is what God is wanting. He's wanting to just take us deeper with himself. He's wanting us to know him in greater ways. And we do that, I think, best when we are secure in our position. It frees us up to just enjoy developing the relationship with God. I'm not under pressure. I'm not in fear. I'm not worried that I'm not going to make it. I'm not constantly thinking that God's upset at me, that he's disappointed, that he's mad because I haven't done something. That's already taken care of. Jesus did it. Positionally, I'm already in heaven. But here I am on earth, and I get to just grow in my relationship with my maker. And that's what the Galatians had forgotten. That's what they had lost. They had it and they lost sight of it. And then everything went sideways. Everything got really, really bad. And as we go further in the epistle, we're going to see just how, how bad things had become among them. But Paul's whole purpose is to bring them back around to that place where they're resting in the finished work of Christ and they understand that we've entered into the blessing of Abraham and now we are just receiving through that personal engagement with the Lord, we are just receiving the, the blessing of his presence and becoming a blessing. You know, I'll close with this. We live in a very distressed world, don't we? And people are distressed over many things. And they're wondering about a lot of things. And there's a lot of angst and there's a lot of anger and, and so much that's happening. And we are the people that God wants to put forth as something different, something different. And so rather than immersing ourselves in all the chaos and confusion and debate and, and all of that stuff that's happening, let's immerse ourselves in this relationship that we have with the maker, the Lord, our Savior. And as we do that, we experience the blessing and we become a blessing to others. So Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to 
understand the distinction between our position and our experience. We thank you, Lord, that we are positionally fixed in heaven. Lord, that the law did its work, brought us to Christ, and we moved on from that. And we're now just growing in our relationship with you. We're, we're cultivating our fellowship with you. And Lord, would you help us to see it that way, to understand it that way. Lord, that we would know that this is not something that we've got to do. It's something that we get to do. We get to seek you. We get to, Lord, follow you and, and obey you. And, and it's all a blessing. It's intended to bless us. And then through us, you intend to bless others. So Lord, help us to receive all that you have as we rest in the blessing of Abraham through our faith in Jesus Christ, our simple faith in him. We thank you for your love and goodness. Amen.